welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. We're, I'm happy to have you, as always. Um, before we get started, I just want to say to everybody, all the tens of people who are listening, uh, thank you for listening. Most definitely. And while you're here, don't... Most what's definitely. That? Most the tens of people. Don't forget to like us on Facebook mm-hmm. and subscribe to our podcast because it literally takes two seconds and it helps us. Most definitely. A lot. We want to retire yeah. in Hawaii. Okay. Exactly. We're trying to retire off this podcast. You get 500 downloads a month. That's when you start selling t-shirts. So please help us reach oh. our goal of 500 downloads an episode. Okay. So our main topic for today is going to be sports and cheating in sports. But before we get uh, started, Tim, since I know you love MLM so much, I thought we could talk about the comorbidity of MLMs and the new coronavirus. I like that word. <laughs> comorbidity yes, that or word. coronavirus. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I observed on Facebook was somebody trying to set up a video conference demo for whatever oh, hair gel or makeup or whatever they were hawking because Everybody, of course, is under pretty much lockdown or self-isolation. But MLMs persist regardless of anything. And so people are still trying to like, hey, who wants to demo Young Living on a video conference through Zoom or whatever? there's a will, there's a way. Well, yeah, exactly. So the other thing that I keep hearing people talking about is like, oh, I'm trying to make this hand sanitizer with essential oils. I have not heard that one. Oh, dear Lord. I just keep overhearing that. And, uh, like, I found this guy on Reddit who's – he's some kind of chemist or or something like that. But he was explaining what essential oils are, like actual essential oils, and then what happens when essential oils are packaged and sold in these MLMs. So actual essential oils are, like, important chemicals, isolated – in an oil and these are chemicals that are often used in medicine so they have medicinal properties but what happens with these MLM ones and the ones that are marketed for like mass production is that they're just mixed in with a lot of other crap so what he said is he's like imagine you really want to buy a chocolate bar and you can't find enough money around the house to go buy one so you get out your old change drawer change jar And you go to the corner store, you put the candy bar up there to pay for it, and then you empty out this change jar. And inside the change jar, you find, like, a button and some nuts and bolts and a lot of things that really have nothing to do with money, but they're just in there. And eventually you come up with enough money to pay for the chocolate bar, but you had all this other crap you didn't need. And that's what like the doTERRA and Young Living and all that other kind of crap is, is yeah, it's got some of the medicinal stuff that you need, but really it's just a jar full of crap. It's like honey from China. So yeah. so I was really into <laughs> honey, really honey like a year ago. And because uh, yeah. my in-laws, my parent in-laws would make their own honey and it tasted so much better than the cheap Walmart stuff I got. And I was doing research right. and I guess there's a huge problem within the honey industry. Uh, that they'll thin yeah. it out with like high fructose corn syrup and sugar, and so it's not natural honey. 
because I couldn't believe the difference in the very cheap honey that my wife was buying from Walmart and this very natural honey that my in-laws were growing on their farm. So yeah, I like I like hey. your analogy, but it makes me think of honey too. Hey, so crazy enough, my father-in-law makes honey oh, too. Oh wow! But a bear came over and <clears throat> destroyed his honey cups. Oh, those are expensive. <laughs> like when my father-in-law told me how much uh, yeah. a queen bee costs, I was shocked because my father-in-law is the type of person that yeah. doesn't. Uh, well, no, he's the type of person when we go golfing, he spends more <laughs> okay. time looking for random golf balls than actually like concentrating on his shot. I don't know. Oh, okay. You think he was like almost a depression era type of person with a lot of his food storage <laughs> that's from like 2004. So, right, still good still, though. Hey, the the 2009 you'll, Prego. You'll find out it's a Sunday great vintage, dinner. exactly. <laughs> we always tease him about it in good in good humor. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess who's laughing now? Exactly. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so sports. So, Tim, something you might not know about me is that I have actually gotten pretty heavy into cycling. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Probably for about off and on for probably about eight years, actually. Oh, wow. I, when I lived in – yeah, when I was still in Calgary, I bought a commuter bike. And I would uh, – yeah, when we lived – we lived by, uh, uh, by Chinook yeah. Center. And so when it, when, you know, for the two months a year, it was rideable. I would ride to Mount Royal for school. And then if I was working a job downtown, like a summer job downtown, then I'd ride my bike, uh, to my job. And so I get like 10 to 15 kilometers a day kind of thing. And that was it. That's a good good little workout daily. And then, yeah, well then when we moved to BC and the weather's just a lot more, conducive to cycling like you know 10 months out uh-huh. of the year then uh like i got a serious road bike and uh a bunch of lycra and just started riding like probably 100 kilometers a week in the okay. summer and did the grand fondo uh vancouver to whistler twice okay. and it, you know don't ask me what my time was but i did it um, so secretly, yes, I've become a little bit of a cyclist. Well, good for you. I, uh, yeah, so I <laughs> used to ride a bike a few years ago when I was getting in really yeah. good shape before I, uh, had a real job and, uh, had kid and yeah. had a mortgage. And, uh, since then I yeah. think I've gained literally 60 pounds. So good for you. <laughs> I'm not even joking about that one. So, right. Well, like I'm just getting, I was off for, I hurt my knees for one summer. And so funny enough, like I was, there's this lake that's kind of up. If you go north of Langley and you start going towards the mountains, there's a lake. It's not any huge kind of climbs, but probably like seven kilometers is just a good steady incline. But anyway, I kind of had a head cold, so I took like Dayquil and I guess like the antihistamine or whatever and the caffeine kind of gave me a buzz and opened up my lungs but it was my first ride of the year but i was hauling ass on this trail and did it the fastest that i'd so ever done sports enhancing drugs performance enhancing drugs yes yes i oh, doped wow. and then i i finished and i had this like severe tendonitis in my <laughs> oh, knees from pushing too hard so so there you go kids don't dope or you might uh yeah, hurt cheaters yourself. never win right 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so as I got more into cycling, I start watching cycling documentaries. Oh wow, you're really into cycling, right? Like what? Well, just watching. Do you, wear, Lance do you have Armstrong. the uh, hat? The like my uncle does a lot of cycling. He has the helmet, the aerodynamic helmet that has like the. You no, don't have that. not yet. Do you have no, biker shorts? No, I'm not like that. Okay, oh, yeah, I actually yeah, own a course. pair of biker shorts, yeah. and, and I like them. So. Yeah, yeah, they make uh, the whole rides extremely much more comfortable. Yes. So. Yes. My uncle yeah. actually he gave me his race bike. I think it's a Fuji. I can't remember. He said okay. it was a couple thousand bucks, but he wanted to leave it up here in case he needed a, a yeah. backup bike because he runs the Calgary Ironman. Probably oh, he's okay. done it a few times. So it's like the his backup bike that I just leave here. And I was riding it, but not so much anymore. I think Didi actually has it. Didi was getting into biking um, in the summer. Oh, really? Because he said it was easier because he lives downtown. So Didi's my little brother. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he just felt that it was faster instead of driving just to bike to his work. Um, it, and it, it, it pretty much was because totally. the downtown traffic was awful during rush hour. Totally. Like when we lived by Chinook Center, I we'd take the C train downtown and all that stuff. And then I was like, I'm just buying a bike because one, it takes about the same amount of time. Two, I'll get in better shape. So I'll just oh, come get on. a bike. It's the BC theme too, the environment. You're, you're yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't live in BC. Oh, that, I was still living in Calgary. Okay, that that's true. But yeah. That's true. Um, okay. So anyway, we have a mutual friend, James N., and he made a Facebook post about uh, <laughs> cycling in Utah. I've actually like literally texting him, uh, like yeah. like I texted him just less than an hour ago, and he he yeah. this friend of ours said that you, he said, um, and he is a cynic of cycling. I know when I was talking about you, and and doing this <laughs> podcast, and uh, we were talking about cycling. So I think he. I think he'll be surprised. Okay. I'm encouraging him to listen to this, and I definitely will after this. But, uh, but yeah, he the fact that he thinks I'm a cynic about cycling based on what I've said shows how little he knows about competitive cycling. <laughs> I think he'd disagree, but no, he won't. After we get through this, he'll understand that I'm a okay. realist, and and he doesn't understand this sport, a sport that was born in cheating. <laughs> So he says he says on Facebook, the race within the race, Team Lotto Jumbo sets the pace for the chase group during the 2017 Tour of Utah. I'll never be a strong enough rider to truly race, but cycling fascinated me. It occupies a unique spot in the pantheon of sport with its combination of speed, teamwork, and trust in both yourself and your fellow riders. And then I commented, you forgot the drugs. And what did he say back to that? Did he say anything? He called me oh, a cynic. Oh, is that what he said, he said cynic? You're always oh. a cynic. Yeah, he called me a cynic then too, and and then I I posted back the wiki link of all the drug, uh, the drug scandals in professional cycling, and it's been there since like the 1800s, like back in the 1800s they just used to use coke, like cocaine okay. before it was illegal, so they just get high and ride their bike, and. Uh, and then that was in the 1800s when, you, you know, it's still like half the time they're riding penny farthings and stuff right. like that. Like, you know, penny farthing, that's like the huge wheel in front. Oh, uh, I did wheel not in the know back. that. Okay, well, that's good. That's, they call it a penny okay. farthing. Anyway, 
Um, so they used to do cocaine or whatever and just get high. And then uh, the Tour de France started in 1903, I think. Okay. Um, and it was sponsored by a sports magazine in order to sell more magazines. That was kind of, they do this so big just for tour race. It was just for marketing, yeah. Um, but the first tour was just open to the public. Like at this point in time, you had you didn't really have like a professional league of cyclists or professional governing body of cyclists. You had some professional cyclists, but but there's no Lance. This tour race was just yeah, yeah. So this tour, it's just open to the general public. And the prize was about two years salary for the average worker. So, I mean, like if we just started a three-legged race that paid 120 grand and it was open to anybody, you'd have all kind of nut jobs and crazy people joining it. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of, you know, bloodthirsty competition. Most definitely. Because right? like two years of your salary is a life-changing amount of money. Oh, yeah. And people would be training for it too and uh, yeah. prepping for it. So with the first tour, they like they had no idea what they were doing. So the first stage of the Tour de France was from Paris to Lyon, which is 450 kilometers. And how long would it take him to do that? Well, I mean, like, a like an, average com- an average commuter cyclist goes at about 25 kilometers an hour, maybe 30. Okay. So that's about 15 to 18 hours. And that's just time on the mm-hmm. saddle. That doesn't include time for breaks. Yeah, you gotta go pee or anything. Or do yeah. cyclists pee themselves? So, like when they're racing, uh, some of them like pull down their shorts and just pee off the side oh, of their man. bike. Like, I depends on how competitive Ugh. you are. Some of them just pee in their shorts. Um, but anyway, the the first Tour de France was delayed they didn't even start till 3 15 in the afternoon because they were complaining about all the wagon tracks in the Uh, road in the dirt road (laughs) that's gonna uh, bring down your time yeah so they started at like 3 15 and they were riding for 450 kilometers and so i think they counted it was like 20 kilos of nails and broken glass were left behind on the road to like pop other cyclist tires. Jeez. So because they're riding all through the night, there's no way for anybody to really monitor any of this and see what's going on. So people are just like, they're throwing nails and stuff. They're getting their buddies to like hide behind bushes and ambush other cyclists and beat them up and stuff like that. So like Nancy Kerrigan did to, uh, Exactly, but I mean, it was all fair. Yeah, they um, they got guys to uh, get poison lemonade and offer it to their competitors. <laughs> and so there's actually one guy. Uh, his name was Hippolyte Alcouturi. I don't know, some French guy. Um, but in the first stage, someone gave him the poison lemonade. Um, he's not able to finish the race. And then uh, he he has to bow out of that stage. In the first Tour de France, you were able to complete the whole tour, but if you dropped out of any stage, you couldn't compete for the grand prize. Uh, 
So he ended up actually winning like two or three other stages, but because he dropped out of this first stage for getting poisoned, he wasn't able to win the grand prize, <laughs> even though he probably would have. Um, and so the next year he gets so bitter um, that he cheats and the way he cheats is by getting a cork attached to a wire which is attached to a car and then he bites down on the cork and the car tows him the whole way so he you did it through his mouth yeah he bites down on this cork and the cork has uh-huh. a wire and the wire is attached to it a car takes but this is like back when cars are only going like 30 uh, okay. kilometers an right. hour right I guess so. like this is the 1900s right. um but he was caught and the reason why he was caught was he got to the finish line like right after the race officials and the race officials got there by car so they're like how did you get here so fast you must have been towed by because <laughs> that's car what they would totally you're think fighting to a court. but did you know that right? in i think it was like early 1980s <clears throat> there was a woman i can't remember her name now she cheated by and won it was either the new york city marathon or the boston marathon she got in a car, right? She got well, – I think she got in a bus. She used transit. And then she like yeah. pops out of the crowd and starts running. And everyone is like, who's this woman that's winning this? And at the end, <laughs> she uh, is getting interviewed. Yeah. And the reporters are like, so what are you doing for training? Are you doing a lot of intervals? And her answer was, what's that? I don't – someone else asked me that too. And I have no idea. So what is it? And then everyone was like, who is this person? And she got caught cheating, so that's kind of funny that yeah. Uh, yeah, same wavelength, eighty years earlier, in in the in the Tour de France. Totally, yeah. Um, other things they used to do, like they put itching powder in each other's oh, shorts. Geez. Like, <laughs> to me, I'd be like, I don't have time for this. Guys, eh? Yeah. <laughs> like you look at these guys, and they're actually wearing like black and white striped shirts. With like villainous handlebar mustaches, and they're all like normal sized guys. Like if you look at cyclists now, they're all like freakishly skinny with massive legs, and they weigh like fifty kilograms. Yeah. And you know, but these first like Tour de France guys, they were just normal sized guys. So what I really liked about that, but I, I sent you that uh, David Epstein TED Talks, and I guess back at yeah. that time, they always thought like the best athletic size was essentially 5'10", 175 pounds, no matter what sport it was. Yeah, just the average guy, exactly. right? If, if the more average you were, the better chance you were to... Yeah, yeah. There was actually... So in 1947, there's this guy, Gene Robick, and he's like five feet tall and really skinny, and he looks like modern cyclists now. Um, so he was really, really fast on the hill climbs in the mountain stages, like in the, in the Alps and stuff like that. But he was so light that he couldn't descend as fast as the heavier guys. So what he did was he got a fake water bottle that was full of mercury and lead and he'd put it on his bike to make him like 20 pounds heavier so he could speed down on the descent. And that wouldn't slow him down on the ascent? He, okay, so he'd have like one of it, someone in his posse or whatever, oh, would give him this positive. water bottle at the top of the mountain. But it was just the. But the water bottle's f- like weighs twenty right, pounds, okay. and so, yeah, he'd be able to zip up the mountain and then just take. Uh, yeah, he he'd use this weight to carry him down. So, you know what's incredible? This is even before like 
drugs, right? And EPO and doping and Lance Armstrong and all the guys who were doping before Lance Armstrong. People have been cheating in this race since the race began. Like cheating is as much of a tour of the Tour de France is what bicycles are. Because what's interesting, some of the cheating that you're bringing up, I see parallels in cheating. There was a 60 Minutes episode like a year ago. I don't know if you saw it. It was on cycling and how cyclists are cheating by putting a motor in their bike. And because you can make motors so small now that you won't notice the weight difference in the bike. And even though the boost is only for a few minutes that's a big advantage to get over a hill or a hard part of the course or give you just a little bit of a break. And that's a big enough advantage that you can really make a lot of strides or win a race by doing that. And the guy that kind of does these motors said, oh yeah, people from professional bikers have contacted me and I've done work for them. So there's definitely cheaters out there. And he also said, I'm not the only one doing this. There's other people that are doing this for the sport. Well, totally. Like that was Lance Arms. That was how Lance Armstrong rationalized it to himself was before he got cancer, he raced so hard and he didn't win. And he was working so hard and he couldn't win. And then he realizes everybody else is doping. And so he has to dope. And you know- That's the way he rationalizes it to the public, at least, is. I was just making the playing field level. Like everybody else around me was doping. If you look at the Tour de France's before Lance's, you know, seven time wins, um, it was like 20, 20 guys on the podium all, you know, got the yellow jersey taken away because of doping. Like everybody was getting busted for doping in the in the 90s. Like, Lance Armstrong wasn't the first guy who did it. He was just the guy who perfected it. But everybody was And he dope. didn't get caught for a long time. I remember, Andrew, my grade 12 diploma exam for English. Yeah. The essay was on Lance Armstrong and his determination. And so yeah. well, I know, spent like, like three hours in that diploma essentially writing how determined he was to overcome he gave you a little story he overcame cancer he's won whatever seven tour de france's or six or five whatever it was at the time and i look back on that and i'm like what a farce like lance armstrong also ruined other people's lives that accused him of cheating because he would go after them and sue them for uh defamation of character and he would win yeah. Oh, yeah. Greg LeMond was one of them. Do you know about Greg LeMond? Enlighten me. So he was the first American who won the Tour de France in the 80s. In his first win, he only won by eight seconds. And the reason why he won was he started pioneering like those funny aerodynamic helmets and the triathlon bars. And so the UCI allowed those things. But he got such an aerodynamic advantage on the last time trial where they ride into the Champs-Élysées. Um, he was behind by 50 seconds or something like that. And then he ended up winning by eight seconds. So he gained almost a minute on the guy in this last time trial, all because he used the arrow helmet and the arrow bars. And they're not even like the arrow bars used today. Like he was still relatively upright, but he, you know, some people might say that in a way he was mechanically doping by taking advantage of these things that other cyclists weren't. Like I get, like it was fair. Like anybody could have used right. them, 
he was the only one who did. Well, and again, it brings me back to that Dave Epstein TED Talks that I sent you in preparation when we were talking about this podcast. Yeah. How incredible, like, yeah, we've made improvements, but we're not like genetic mutants that in a hundred years, I think David Epstein points out the marathon winner of the 1904-1908 Olympics. It was like almost three and a half yeah. hours. And then in 2012, yeah. it was two hours. So we didn't all of a sudden just evolve into these super creatures. It was things like an improvement in your bike, understanding or an improvement in your helmet or the clothes that you wear or the bike bar, all those things play a factor. But the governing body, do they regulate that really well? Like what do they do? They regulate like everything. And there's some things like they just, sometimes they'll just say no to things almost arbitrarily. Like there is this guy who set the one hour record on a track, but he made this bike. He built it out of like old washing machine parts and stuff like that. Like it was really weird. And his arms were positioned right under his chest and he was almost laid out like a Superman kind of thing. It was this really weird bike, but he like crushed the one hour record. And then as soon as the UCI found out that he like made this bike in his basement out of washing machine parts, they're they're like, Oh no, 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 no. You can't use this bike. (laughs) Your record's invalid. And it was just kind of like an image thing or a, like a, a prestige kind of thing. They're like, we can't have guys making their own bikes out of washing machine parts and winning our records. Okay. Like this is cycling, the most sophisticated cheating sport it's in the world. Protecting the character of the game. Uh, of the game. Yeah. That kind of like lame kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Anyway. So where did we go to? I, Oh, we we're talking about Lance. We got into Greg mm-hmm. Lamond. And now here we are talking. Yeah, I think that. So Lance Armstrong. Part of oh, like, go for it. Okay, so the story of Lance Armstrong. He told such a good story, and his story was so good. I remember as a kid not even caring about cycling, but I just make this joke whenever people talked about Lance. Like, imagine what he'd do if he had two nuts. Yeah, I remember you telling that joke. Right. You remember me saying that? Like that was just that. It was so amazing that this guy had a testicle removed, that he came back from cancer, and then he came back and started doing better than before he had cancer. And it was just, like, so amazing. And I even remember, like, in 2012 or whatever, when his ex-teammate started uh, blowing the whistle on him, that I was just – I didn't even believe it. I'm like, no, it's just a jilted former teammate who hates him, who's just trying to get even – I probably believe that to like four or five years ago. Honestly. Well, and that's c- because there was always rumors of that. And then, you know, there's people yeah. that would make like a mountain out of a molehill and they would try to say things like, oh, he left his wife or his trophy wife or trophy girlfriend. Cause I think it was Cheryl Crow. He dated a while for a while. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I remember those things. So it was so hard to really start believing that, oh, this is real. It was almost kind of like coronavirus. I felt like, and I was of the camp yeah, when yeah. it was out in China and Europe a little bit, that I'm like, oh, this happens like every couple of years. We've had Ebola, swine flu, Zika virus, the list goes on. But now it's super serious. And now I'm like, oh yeah, I should have believed it. It's like the boy that cries wolf. And then all of a sudden it happens and you're like, I don't know if I believe yeah. it, even though everyone's saying it and it's being dictated and the evidence is there. But anyways, well, the, like the the thing with, I guess, like the 
the housing crisis and Lance Armstrong is there were both people the whole time saying this is a bubble that's going to burst. Like there were journalists who followed Lance aggressively and kept saying this guy is a doper. He's working with this um, Mikel Ferrari who is a notorious uh, guy who gets cyclist doping. He's almost like a Dr. Frankenstein who's just trying to make a, you know, a living monster out of <laughs> cycling monster out of drugs. And Lance like defends this guy and works with this guy and, and he supports and defends other dopers. And there, I just remember there's this one guy, this Irish guy who followed him and he was talking about like when Lance came back <laughs> And and there were all these posters that said Hope Rides Again and he's like the Jesus Christ a cycling Hope Rides Again. Oh man, this is too much. But, but there was a huge oh, yeah, like, cult people. following like I remember our friend Jason would always wear that Lance Armstrong wristband. Like all the time. Oh everybody Wait, wore it. And those. like they were so like they I remember going to Market Mall Sport Check looking for those and they were yeah. always sold out. You couldn't, yeah, like he was such a phenomenon. It was like your body would just reject the idea that Lance Armstrong could have possibly doped. Yeah, even but, the school system like had the me do a, my grade 12 diploma uh, essay on it. On yeah. him, yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it's tough. I You know, I look at those sports like cycling and swimming, those high-skill sports, and the amount yeah. of doping that goes on. Like the last uh, Olympics, last summer, I think it was the summer, maybe it was the yeah. Winter Olympics with Russia and Russian athletes. And how it was such a widespread yes. problem. I don't... Well, Russia didn't Russia didn't actually compete in the Olympics. Well, technically. The Russian athletes competed. So s- the Russian athletes who didn't get busted competed under the Olympic flag, not the Russian yeah, flag. Yeah, that, that to me, whatever, I... I you know what? It's above my pay grade to uh, comment on it, but I thought that was a. Uh, <laughs> it's like not a punishment. You're grounded, and uh, but you can still well, play I video just, games. Well, I just like that's grounds. how many, like, like the Russian team was decimated by cheating. That the remaining athletes couldn't even compete under. Like there weren't enough Russian athletes left, right, for like a Russian team. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, there's countries that compete with like four athletes or two athletes. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean though. But it's it's such an advantage to do that, and and I can see why. So when I was really running a lot, I was running half marathons and ten k's. It was really easy yeah. for me. Like my first, um, my first ten k, I think it was sixty two minutes. I did it actually with our friend James, interestingly. Right. And then I did a couple more ten k's, and then by the summer. My wife's hometown, Raymond, their 10K, I got it down to 47 yeah. minutes. And then it was getting okay. harder to get it down much past then. Like, like yeah. I could, I could, I was doing exercises, interval training, eating well. Um, yeah. And I would get like a 15 second improvement, which is still huge. Yeah. But then I have a friend. Yeah. Um, who's really big into running and he's at the point where like a 10k if he improves it by like three seconds he's happy like when he's really yeah. into the running thing and so i can see how you taking this performance enhancing drug just gives you an extra few seconds and it can be the difference between 
getting a prize or not a prize or winning the Olympic gold medal and not winning the Olympic gold medal. Like it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, with, um, like I know James talked about the, what the unique spot in the pantheon of sport with its combination of speed teamwork and trust. Another like tour de France highlights are really exciting to watch, especially when you watch them, like they get a little bit tactical and they call it like it's an attack. So you're all just grinding up a hill, but all of a sudden somebody will just put on the gas and start breaking away from the group. And then everybody else is kind of like, Oh crap, I need to start breaking away. So kind of how you time that attack and, and knowing your opponent, there's kind of a strategic element to it, which is pretty interesting and pretty fun right. to watch. Like in a lot of racing but sports. That is like, that's like the last 30 minutes of a five hour race like four and a half hours of that race is watching a hundred guys grind and i think that's why sports like cycling and and like endurance running and weightlifting things where it's like cross-country skiing where it is the emphasis is just on one singular skill and mostly strength and there's really nothing else you can do to up your game. That's why you have to cheat because there's literally you reach the pinnacle of human physiology and there's no much further. You can't go any further on your own. You're getting these marginal one second over an hour kind of gains. And it's like, how can I, I can't get any better. Yeah. And you know, like I look at like the individual sports and one sport I thought, why isn't there much cheating in was tennis. But a couple of years ago, Maria Sharapova got busted for doping. Right. So it happens in tennis, and we're not. It happens in other sports too, especially baseball. Um, but yeah, but it just seems like when you well, like if you think, oh yeah, sorry, just go when ahead. You see an athlete. Like sometimes I see a, an athlete that just looks freakishly athletic. I'm like, man, yeah. are they like hyped up on steroids or? But anyways, yeah, that's. I think, like, if you think about tennis, and I don't know tennis very well, but if the power in your swing is a big deciding factor in winning or losing, then yeah, I think you come to a point in your strength training where it's just like, if I dope, I can get a way more powerful swing. Like similar with all the steroid use in baseball, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, baseball's a team game, but ultimately, like, what do you do? You load the bases and then try and get a home run. That's it. When you're on the offense, that's all you can do. I can't think of anything else you can do to up your game in baseball other than load the bases and then get a home yeah, run. Yeah, there's a lot of strategy in baseball, but I, neither of us are baseball. But ultimately, like, what like, what else can you do to change offensively in baseball? Yeah, you can still like I like the Kansas City. I remember watching the Kansas City Royals in the playoffs, yeah. and they would steal bases a lot. And this was like three right. or four okay. years ago. But no, I get you. That's like the right. basic strategy. And then you have like the Oakland A's trying to do the bean count. And but yeah, you want yeah, the, the everyone well, that's wants the you're talking about Moneyball, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So that was that was an innovation that had a bigger impact probably on baseball than Mark McGuire and. Who is, who is Mark McGuire against? Sammy Sosa. Like that, Sammy yeah. Sosa, right? The Royd Ragers. So I think Moneyball had a bigger impact on the game of baseball. Like, yes, there is a way you can game it. But I just mean a lot of what baseball comes down to is how hard can I hit this ball? 
Yeah, I think some baseball purists will will disagree, but uh, but I get well, what you're I saying. I don't care because what well then why does it have because you don't see that in hockey where guys are just like I'm roiding so I can get a harder slap. Yeah, shot. okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it all like a big part of baseball is how hard can I hit this mm-hmm. ball? Well, and that's the right? sexy part of baseball too. Like, I mean, it is like people want to see, there's even a Simpsons episode. I think it's with Mark McGuire right. and he's like, do you yeah. want to know the truth or do you want to see me hit dingers? And then the little kids are like dingers. And then he just hits the yeah, ball. Yeah, like totally. that's so yeah, yeah, no, I, I get totally. what you mean now. I, I get it. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. The, I'd say uh, a hockey player being able to shoot a faster puck has less of a advantage and impact than a, than a baseball player being able to hit the ball harder and further. Mm, right. Definitely. Um, Cause you look at like talking about my grade 12 diploma exam, I had an essay on Wayne Gretzky. Oh, you did. Yeah. And so the way he changed the game, because the interesting thing about Wayne Gretzky, it's not just that like, Oh, he scored so much and blah, blah, blah. It's that he was small and he was slow. And he went to where the puck was. And he wasn't physical. Yeah. Like, he he didn't have as much strength or athleticism as any other player he was playing with. And even when he first started in the NHL, lots of people were skeptical about whether or not he'd be able to make anything of himself. They're like, who's this small, unathletic, rinky-dink right. guy? And he completely changed the game. Because he was smart. Yeah. Like, he looked at the game analytically... And, uh, and would set up plays. And I just like watching clips of Gretzky's greatest goals. He makes passes that the camera doesn't even track. Like he, he is very unpredictable in that way. Like he's skating, he's, he's driving the puck up. And then all of a sudden the camera's just like panning the opposite direction because, oh crap, he passed like three seconds ago and we missed it. it. You, you know, I yeah, never really like, watched cause I, so I lived in Utah until I was 14 and I never really yeah. watched Gretzky, but everyone talks about Gretzky up here, obviously. And everyone knows who he is yeah. in North America. Um, but I'll have to watch yeah. some video of him uh, actually playing and passing. It's just to me, the other thing, like he just appears where he needs to be to score. That's another mm-hmm. thing. When you watch these things, it's just like his other teammates are setting up a play. And all of a sudden, oh, there's Gretzky. And he just, he's right in the goalie's blind spot and he just popped it in the net. And you didn't even know he was going to be there kind of thing. He just, he always, that was the way his dad taught him was to like be where the puck is going, not where it's all already oh, yeah, that's been. The quote. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's and stuff like that. Like, and, and so his dad also taught him to like read other players, body language to look for where they're thinking about shooting or where they're thinking about going and stuff like that. So he taught Gretzky learned how to read the game. And, and I think with team sports like this, it's a lot easier to change the game through how you analyze the game, how you read other players, rather than just through your pure raw strength and endurance. Oh, totally. I, like for foot, we'll, take, we'll take football. I look at Tom Brady. Yeah. And yeah. Tom Brady, he's not a very athletic guy. When he throws the ball, yeah. it doesn't like wow you like some other players can throw the ball. Um, it, like he's not fast, he's not strong, and he even admits that. And he just says, "Well, that's not what quarterbacking is about." And and really, he's right. Like, 
but Tom Brady is like the clutchest quarterback in the history of the NFL. So like how many how many Super Bowls has Six, he won? And he's been to oh either eight or nine. Well, wait a minute. How many has he won when you adjust for inflation? <laughs> what do you, oh yeah yeah. Well the deflate <laughs> was only one, and he got a four game suspension for that. Oh, I'm just kidding. It was a Seth. Oh, Myers, was it a Smith Myers Seth joke? Myers okay. Joke. Like adjust adjusting for inflation. I, I, yeah, get yeah, it? I get it. I get like, it. Okay. Are you sure you yeah, work I, in banking? I, I thought you get uh, yes. Um, but no, like Tom Brady's incredible. Um, like what yeah. makes him incredible? I I like what Brian Billick said that he just he has the intangibles, and that's just a euphemism yeah. for we don't know what he has, but he just has it. You can just tell and it could be bill belichick but but you're right like tom brady doesn't need to be the ultra athlete like same similar to what wayne gretzky is or in the nba i look at someone recent like steph curry yeah you can have someone like lebron james who is the best basketball player all around ball player in almost in my generation at least in the last 25 years uh, 20 yeah. years and uh, but the way that Steph Curry changed the game is now every team wants to jack three pointers like not yeah. like it's in high right. school like when I go to high school games here in Airdrie I see kids wanting to be the Golden State Warriors they want to jack a bunch of threes and and Steph Curry in my opinion changed that dynamic of basketball for sure and Steph Curry's a small guy right? yeah he's pretty small he used to be really small when he was in college but I, th- I think he's only yeah. like six five, maybe I want to say six three even. But I just like watching him on the court. I feel like he's Muggsy Bogues. Oh well, like, yeah, everybody Comparably else is in the so NBA, he's like definitely smaller. He's so small for, as a basketball player. Um, and I only watched like the. I kind of watched the NBA Finals kind of piecemeal, um, but what I did notice was like. Golden State Warriors start sinking threes. Oh, now Toronto's going to start doing threes. Like all, you know, Toronto's just playing a regular game of basketball, and then they get behind because Golden State's doing threes. So all of a sudden, Toronto just starts trying to go for threes right. all the time. Was that? Did you notice that too? Like that was just with my virgin eyes, not really watching. I mean, a lot of yeah, basketball. like that was one the thing, thing with the Warriors, especially. So they have more than just Steph Curry. Like they had Clay Thompson, yeah. Kevin Durant, even Draymond Green can can hit a three somewhat at the time. Um, but it was yeah. like you felt like no lead was safe. Like I don't know if you watched the game. I think Toronto had a pretty big lead going into halftime in one of the games, and they lost it yeah. like within essentially one quarter. Yes. So, was that was that the final? Because I remember the final final game. It was like a yo yo. Yeah, it wasn't the final final game. I think it was game four, maybe game three. I remember okay. I was at a. a Mark and Tina's house and uh, yeah. we were watching it. I was really sad that we had to go, but then <laughs> the person that was marrying into the family was a big basketball fan. So it worked out great. Right. But anyways, yeah. Um, yeah. Steph Curry changed the game that way uh, that now everybody and all, oh, I guess all the data analytics support it too. Cause the three pointers were yeah. 50% more than a two pointer. Um, yeah, and and now teams will draft. They can't just draft for shooting. Like you have, you have, you still have to be able to play defense. You can't kill your team in other aspects of the game. But um, if you yeah. are an elite three point shooter, forty percent plus, um, you got a good shot at being 
a good NBA player that a team wants. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds just like like with Moneyball, it was all about on-base percentage, yeah. right? They found that was the, the thing most correlated with getting home runs. Yeah. And But then that paradigm ended up shifting away. Like that ended up getting changed again. Well, right? yeah, kind of like – so the Kansas City Royals were – kind of anti that they wanted to steal bases where in Moneyball they didn't want to steal bases and then even yeah. Billy Bean I remember he traded for I think his name is John Lester a high profile pitcher and was kind of going against the principles of the Bean count because they've just struggled for whatever reason in the playoffs the Oakland A's so people have criticized right. that that oh you know what that's a great regular season strategy but when you get to the playoffs it's a completely different game so right who knows but apparently the red sox adopted it in their first world series win in x amount of years in 2004 2005 so who knows i mean that's the beauty about these team sports is that yeah there can be a lot of strategy and skill but there's still an element of luck which creates like really high highs and low lows and i think i don't know i i feel like that's a big appeal to it even though it's not just pure skill it's fun it's it's a lot more fun to watch well like that was the interesting thing with the like with the youtube video that you sent me talking about why hockey depends more on luck than on Mm -hmm. skill uh compared to basketball basketball depends more on skill and the reason why is because in basketball um physical your physical attributes like your height um plays in a lot more or you got more variance in in physicality whereas like everybody every hockey player is more or less the same size every soccer player is more or less the same size and because they don't really have a physical advantage over each other they all end up working to the same professional skill level and so because it's just it's pretty much like when a when an immovable force meets an unstoppable object, it it just defaults to luck. Like luck ends up being the deciding factor in those sports. Whereas with basketball, because you've got such a variation in the size and skill of guys, yeah. like you can have really tall guys who suck and really tall guys who are really really good, and they're both in the NBA. Skill can end up edging out more than than just sheer right. luck. And there's a lot of possessions in basketball, like. Like right, each right. side takes you have to take a shot within twenty four seconds. Yes, and yeah. There's a yeah. lot of games, um, and you can have a player like in the playoffs. I don't know if you noticed, Kawhi Leonard could play like out of a forty eight minute game, he'd play like forty four minutes. Yeah, that was the other. Is that the hockey is more physically draining? Well, yeah, right? and so you get play like Sidney Crosby in hockey will play like twenty five minutes probably in a playoff game. Yeah. So he's not even on the ice for more than half of the game where your LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard is on the court. And yeah, it's just the dynamic of the game, right? Like in the NBA, you're running a lot, but there's a whistle quite often because of a foul or the ball goes out of bounds or whatever reason it is. It's more fluid in hockey. And uh, And skating is freaking hard. Oh, yeah. Like you go out like a two minute shift and and you're done. Like you're exhausted. Yeah. Skating is hard. Mm -hmm. And I guess, like, yeah, what you're talking about with possession, like when you have the ball in basketball, like you've got a lot better control over the ball than what a hockey player has over a puck, right? right? Like the ball's just bigger. You've got your hands on it. Hockey, it's so small. 
you're controlling it with a stick in kind of an awkward way, right? Totally. And they like your stick is only handed one way. If if the puck goes to the opposite way, all of a sudden you're playing backhanded. Like, you know what oh, I mean? Totally. And you're, one thing with hockey yeah. too, like, and you know, like I'm an American that didn't grow up with hockey, and I do watch it yeah. once in a while. But it seems like a lot of goals, yeah. like a defenseman will shoot it, it'll be deflected by two or three people, and then go in. And it does yeah. take on. Yeah. yeah, I give the person that tips the puck in huge kudos for that amount of skill to take like a 90 mile an hour puck and be able to deflect it off your little stick into the net. Yeah, that's impressive. But sometimes I feel like it's a big element of luck before a puck to go in compared to shooting a three. Totally. Well, basketball. like that's why they started doing that thing on sports net where like they highlight mm-hmm. the puck. I remember that. And like, yell because it's so hard to follow. Right. And you've just got to be the guy who's there at the right place at the right time to knock the puck right. in the net. Like, I think that that was what Gretzky did was he was, it was like he was able to follow the pinball in the pinball machine right. and he just knew where to be. And he also knew how to set up other players. He had more assists than he had goals. Yeah. It, uh, I think that, yeah, that's natural in hockey, but I know I've looked at the, the stats but, in hockey and it's like yeah. Wayne Gretzky and nobody else is even really close to him. Well, well yeah. The, sorry. The other thing is, is if you discounted all of his goals and only counted his assists, he'd still have the most points that's right. of any player in hockey. About that. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant about oh, his I assists see. was yeah. just that like his his assists hold the record on their own. So it wasn't just that like he knew where to be, he knew how to set everybody else up on his team. He knew how to get them in the right place and he knew how to pass off the puck for their best chance at success. Yeah, like the next, I'm just looking up the stats. Wayne Gretzky has 2,857 points. Second place is Yammer yeah. Yager, who played until yeah. he was like, I think, 44 or 45. And he played yeah. for the Flames, and I took him to, I took all the scouts one one day, and I'm like, you get to see someone that's older than your dad's <laughs> play in the NHL. How cool yeah. is that? And Yammer Yager has 1,900 yeah. points, and and so there's almost a thousand point difference from first to second. Yeah, which is which is incredible. Kudos to to Wayne Gretzky. Well, I'm impressed yeah. how much you know about sports. I think when we were uh, 14 and 15, you uh, wouldn't have known any of this, and you name more cyclists than I ever could imagine during this podcast. Just Lance Armstrong. That's all. No, I you mean. Mean, didn't you name several others in like the early Tour de France? Oh, like the. In the first Tour yeah, de France. That's more yeah. than I'll ever... Those guys were like chimney sweeps and stuff yeah. like that. Like, yeah, so I... Uh... <laughs> they were... But, like, I don't know. Like, a lot of the podium has been uh, has been shamed with drug scandals. And apparently, like, one of the Lance Armstrong documentaries I watched was, like, there was a big problem with doping in the early 90s. And then the UCI actually told all the tour riders, you guys... We've done a lot to say we're cleaning things up, so we need you to ride a little bit slower. And then they had the fastest <laughs> tour on record that year. Oh, you know, there's something though that is enamoring about watching greatness, like Usain Bolt, like Michael Phelps, and it's almost yeah. like it destroys that. Oh gosh, the excitement that you have, or the I don't even know what to call it, but 
like I remember in graduate school we talked about the element of play in warfare and yeah. how like a spoil sport was worse than a cheater because the spoil sport ruins the illusion where the cheater doesn't yeah but it still feels like yeah. after you find out that someone cheats and you're like oh man it ruins the illusion and now like one swimmer I really like watching is her name's Katie Ledecky and she does like yeah. uh, not like super long swims but not short swims she'll do like I think like her 800 meter is her um, go to swim and she's like five body lengths ahead of the next person in the last Olympics and she was in college at the time and I'm just like yeah. oh man please don't be doping because this is so cool how much better you are than everyone else is at this sport it's it's fun to see that greatness. Was she a doper? Uh, I think so far, no, she isn't. But like, do I, I mean I say like <laughs> yeah. I hate to say so far, but yeah, yeah, like yeah, well, totally. It's to the point where so I listen to a podcast called PTI, and every time yeah. like a, especially in baseball, like Ryan, I remember Ryan Braun got caught for for doping, and the sportscasters yeah. are like, honestly, he probably did. Like we don't know what else to believe at this point. Like, he's going to say the same things. He didn't know it was taking this drug or that drug or whatever. But, like, it's at the point where you just kind of like, yeah, I guess it's happening again. Like, Alex Alex Rodriguez was got caught, caught cheating, I think, three times in his career. Yeah. So. so, like, what do you think? Do you think there's an answer for it? Do you think we keep trying to police it? Do you think we should just let them have at her? What do you think? I think they need to keep policing it. I mean, if you're going to get yeah. athletics into just being drugged up, we're going to have dead athletes in their 40s. And, yeah, I think they should really police it hard. And is it difficult to police sometimes? I guess so. I'm not in the sport, but, like, I work with someone that was an Olympic athlete for Canada in badminton, and she treated it like – like it was sacred to be clean in the sport. And she said that when athletes say they don't know what they're taking, she always cries BS because you have devoted so much of your time and energy into this sport that you are definitely conscious of every single thing you eat because it could jeopardize your career. So, Okay, so a follow-up question for you is where, where do you start drawing the line at what is – performance enhancing what isn't like for a long time in cycling uh coffee and caffeine was banned as a performance oh really oh geez that's a good question and you take that another step further is are is like powerade and gatorade and other electrolyte drinks are those performance enhancing because technically they're replacing it's a supplement you're replacing the the sodium and stuff like that that you lose through sweat Mm -hmm. If somebody gets a better electrolytic mix in their drink, do they have an unfair advantage? Or like, where do we draw the line at it? Because there are performance enhancers we allow. Oh yeah, like a lot of people, like a lot of athletes train in Utah because the elevation's so high, and then when they go yep. down to wherever California to, to sea, sea level. level, they have a big advantage, yep. and people will sleep in oxygen tents to get the same advantage. So do we not right. allow that? And if so, how do you police that? Like, you're going to keep a camera on this guy 24-7? So, yeah, no, those are good questions. I Like, yeah, I don't know. Because I'm a little bit more at the once you get to the professional level, it's anything goes. 
They know the risks. They're the ones getting paid the big money. They can choose whatever they want. And because people like, it's just like the movie gladiator, right? Like Maximus starts out and he's an efficient killing machine and everybody hates him. And then he gets taught like the people need to love you. You don't just need to survive. If you want to win your freedom, you have to win the crowd over. And so then maybe that's, no, those are interesting points. Like, let's take a look at the NFL and CTE. Like, do you know about that? Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, chronic encephaly yeah, yeah. thing a chronic yeah. traumatic encephalopathy i think that's how you say it um right. but okay. yeah like so a lot of those players now are suing the nfl but i'm wondering if the lawsuit is more so that the nfl knew and was hiding it then yeah that's so what, yeah that's so then what if it you is, just tell it? the athletes like look you're a professional athlete we're paying you this amount this is what you're signing up for anything goes we're waiving all liability so do you think it should just be like that I'm inclined a little bit more towards that because you kind of like, where do you start drawing the line on what's performance enhancing and what's not performance enhancing? Yeah. But then wouldn't you have like a governing body that says that, I mean, I agree with you, but yeah, I don't know. Says that this is okay. But it's just, okay. Like you have a governing body, but like, okay. Like caffeine is a performance enhancer. Like when you're jazzed up on caffeine, you can, your body has more energy so you can output more Mm -hmm. energy. So should people not be able to drink a cup of coffee before a race? Yeah. Like, I mean, it could be – you could draw the line at socially acceptable or you could draw a line like is this drug more harmful than that drug to your long-term health? So – But that – so like I mean – so okay. So when they're professional as athletes, they're getting paid to do this. It's not like they're college kids who aren't getting paid mm-hmm. for it aren't really seeing any of the upside of it. That's an issue, right? Because they're they're putting their lives at risk for no real benefit. So what if those college athletes are trying to get into the professional ranks? Yeah, I get yeah, yeah, as the words came out of my mouth, that's yeah. what I thought. I mean, yeah. I think yeah, I don't I think there has to be some sort of governing body and there is going to be some arbitrary decisions made. Like, like yeah. I mean, you could have one end of the spectrum, caffeine. The other end, you could have cocaine or steroids yeah. or something that's going to be very detrimental to your long-term health. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's a tough question, and, and I think organizations allow things and disallow things. And, and a new dynamic is coming in as well in sports that, like, with transgender, um, like, yeah. they can – like I I don't know if I, I don't want to think, get into, I don't want to get into that too, but that I always one. think about like, <laughs> how is this going to be like, we want to be emboldening everybody's differences, but then how do we be fair yeah. to athletes? Anyways, that's another podcast. You and Blake can tackle that one. I don't, I just leave that one to Joe. Oh, yeah, there you go. Like you need to be famously untouchable to discuss that. I think, I think. so as well. Neither of us want to <laughs> but... lose our jobs because we mistakenly say something or do something like i that's such a loaded question that i don't even yeah, yeah. but i okay so back to performance enhancement mm-hmm. um i think like like you know some sports it doesn't happen a lot like for whatever reason in hockey i don't hear people getting suspended for performance enhancers maybe because it's not really needed. and i think i 
Well, I wonder if it's because it comes down so much to luck that it's like, okay, we can get our guys to do steroids and we still lose. Yeah. It doesn't play like, as much <laughs> of an impact. It does happen in football once in a while. You'll hear people get suspended um, for yeah. taking performance-enhancing drugs. Is it usually linemen? Yeah, it's linemen and like wide receivers for whatever weird reason seems to be that way. Well, because they have to run, right? R- wide receivers always Yeah, they're running. always running, so I could see that. And yeah, linemen. Like Vaughn Miller, who's a prolific defensive end for the the Broncos. He's been caught, yeah. I think, twice now. So if he gets caught again, he's gone right. for at least a year. So And then yeah. Josh Gordon was a receiver, a high-profile receiver that got caught doing it. I'm trying to think if there's ever been like a quarterback. And I don't think there has. At least not a high-profile one. Well, it doesn't make sense because quarterback's got to be smart. He doesn't have to be strong. He doesn't have to be fast. He just has to right, be smart, right? right? Like Tom Brady. Like I, I think that I guess what's interesting with like as we talked about baseball and with football as well is that you can change the game by being smart, but also there's a significant part of the game that depends on being really, really mm-hmm. strong. Like linemen, the bigger and stronger you are, the bigger an impact you're going to have on the game. Right. Same thing, baseball. The harder you hit the ball, the bigger the impact you're going to have on the right. game. But at the same time, if you're how whether it's stealing or on base percentage that you're using to pick your team, or whether it's um, your quarterback's ability to read and execute plays, that also has a, a big impact. So you probably see certain positions running into drug use more than other positions in those sports would just be my uneducated right. guess. Yeah, no, I think that I think you're on the right track with that. But and you know what, maybe who knows, maybe it's something we don't know like the NHL just doesn't test compared to doesn't test as much. Yeah. So, or maybe the culture plays a big factor. There's a lot of things that can determine that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I better go. It's 11 o'clock. I got an early day tomorrow. All right. Do you want to end off somehow or yeah, so Tim, what did you learn about like sports? I like, learned that you were way more into cheating in sports. First, I learned that Andrew Cacao <laughs> is way more into certain sports than I ever thought he would be, such as cycling. <laughs> um, second, uh, we hashed out a lot of ideas about the cheating in sports, and I think they all make sense. So I'm interested to see if we get any feedback on that. And third, I don't know mm. if there was a third, but what did you learn, Andrew? There's some things I think in my head, and then it's good to get them out. I think the key point here, though, is that cycling is inextricably tied to cheating. And wherever you have competitive cycling, you will inevitably have a high level of cheating. Because it's associated with the history of the professional sport, Tour de France started with with cheating, and it will certainly end with cheating.